Hello there. Servus. My name is Sean Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Well, we're going to be talking about Russia beginning to bombard Odessa. We're going to be talking about Poland potentially intervening in Western Ukraine, how that might look. And then we're going to talk about the recent U.S. soldier that crossed the DMZ into North Korea and what that's going to mean for us moving forward. All that and more coming up. let's get into the rapid fire news so we have the spanish elections we have elections in spain taking place with the popular party and the socialist workers party the right and the left the biggest right and left leaning parties in the country gaining 33 and 31 percent of the vote respectively so the popular party has 33 percent of the vote the socialist workers party has 31 percent of the vote but given even given these uh, gains on especially on the part of the these two parties, neither of them has a large enough majority on their own to form a government. Now, there's talk that the Popular Party might have to form a coalition government with the Vox Party of the, of Spain, which is another right-wing party, um, more pro-shutting down immigration, more pro-traditionalism uh, in Spain, and a sort of a, a Spain-first type party. But even with the Popular Party and that party, the Vox Party combined, that still wouldn't have enough to form a coalition government. And if I remember that correctly, they, they would still need seven seats. So they would need to team up with yet another party, or depending on how long this stalemate lasts in the government, they might just have to hold new elections. So I'll be completely honest with you. Uh, so be on the lookout for that. But we have yet another European government that is now being reshoveled. So we'll see what Spain looks like on the other side and which faction of these political parties sort of comes out on top. And perhaps we'll even have a, a very strange coalition of these parties. But that's Spain. We have the U.S. moving forward with a $500 million weapons deal to Taiwan. Uh, so the, the Taiwan conflict is on deck. But, you know... Thinking about this strategically, you, you already know my, my stance on the United States offering up security guarantees like candy, especially to Taiwan, a very unwinnable uh, war that we're trying to get into. But thinking about it strategically, because, uh, you know, my mind wandered onto the subject uh, earlier this week, I, I'm thinking about all these countries who are importing all these American weapons. How do you defend yourself the second your supply of those weapons and of the ammunition for those weapons? It's also the ammunition. How do you defend yourself if, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, say all of it got spent in Ukraine? How do you defend yourself if the supply of the imported material ceases? What, you fight for like three, four months at high-intensity conflict, and then that's it? You just hope and pray that the war is over by then? Because who is Taiwan going to fight other than potentially China? Maybe Japan if the Japanese get uppity. 
if they just decide, you know what, well, we're going to take that back. You know, it, it was ours in the 1930s, and we're just going to take it back. Now, granted, Japan could wake up one day and decide that, and that they want to choose violence, but real, well, more probably, more probable, I should say. I don't know about, I don't know if I'd quite discount the Japanese entirely in that regard. But more probable, it's going to be China. The obvious danger to Taiwan in sort of a, a wartime scenario is going to be China. Uh, unless the Taiwanese flip to Chinese to China's side and then we fight a war with Taiwan. And then suddenly all this talk about defending democracy goes out the window. But what do you do when you fight this war? You're dependent on American weapons. And then the American weapons and ammunition dries up. I um, mean, when the war in Ukraine first started, we got all these, all this stuff about, oh, oh, oh the, the world is watching and Taiwan is learning the lessons of, of Ukraine and Xi Jinping is watching Ukraine really closely uh, to, to see how Taiwan is going to, how the war in Taiwan is going to go and how the America is going to react to his impending war in Taiwan. And, you know, now those reports were correct, just not in the way that they, you know, thought that they were. And that's because everyone thought that Ukraine's going to win and that Russia's just been halted and that Russia's going to lose. And more and more people are, those same people are now coming around to the fact that that is not going to be the case. It's not going to be the case. Now we're in summer. We are in summer. And the rude awakening is starting to sort of seep in. No. Have we gotten to the Russian backbreaker offensive? Only time will tell because it's sort of a, a slow roll thing. I'm sure when we see the, the Russians dropping bombs like candy on Ukrainian army formations, we'll know. But for the time being, it looks like the Russians are just going along with the slow and steady approach, which might gradually morph into the backbreaker offensive. And then, you know, something we can point to as, oh, right, the, the great Russian offensive has begun. But for the time being, it's more of a, a push and pull, except the Ukrainians can neither push nor pull. But you look at Ukraine, they're heavily dependent on American weapons, heavily dependent on American ammunition, and you can add NATO to that, but the rest of NATO didn't exactly have much to give. And now they're in a position where we have emptied ourselves out for them. Even after we've emptied ourselves out for them, uh, they still haven't won the war. Now we have nothing. We're, we're offering out cluster munitions. Instead of normal 155 millimeter artillery shells, we're offering up cluster munitions now, because we're we're all out. What does that say to uh, any other country who is dependent on American weapons? Because I, I was I was just thinking about this. Because imagine you're you're Taiwan, you're dependent on all these American weapons and ammunition. And the Americans are talking about, you're out. Because for the, the longest, I've been looking at this purely from an American perspective, uh, you know, an American nationalist perspective, I'll say that, not necessarily the, the pro, we're going to defend everybody perspective. The American perspective, the Russian perspective, every now and then I'll, you know, step into Ukraine's shoes and sort of look at it from their perspective. But I, I never really thought about how the people who are dependent, you know, the other people who are dependent on American aid would view these things, or at the very least what these things would mean to them. If America's out of ammo because Ukraine ate it all up, 
what does that mean for you? It means that your supplies of all the, these American jets, these American bombs, these American guns and bullets, these American artillery shells, and these American-made missiles, your supplies are now more finite than they were to begin with. I mean, it's not like we had infinite numbers of it, uh, as we can now see very clearly with the war in Ukraine. And the war in Ukraine is, by all intents and purposes, a very limited war. It's a high-intensity war, but it is a limited war with limited numbers of men and materiel. Well, not so much the materiel side, but it's constrained to a singular geographic area between largely two countries. I know NATO is involved indirectly, and quite frankly, a lot of other countries are involved indirectly on the Russian side, Iran, North Korea, China. But if you are dependent on these weapons and America is out, how do you defend yourself? The Ukraine war was a limited war. China-Taiwan might be a limited war in the same regards, but my goodness, if America runs out of ammunition, not even fighting the Russians ourselves, but from letting the Ukrainians fight, it, fight that fight for us, what does that mean to you? You have, uh, now you cannot sit there and say, oh, the Americans will bail us out. Now, suddenly the idea that America, if we run out of missiles, America's just going to give us more. If we, if we run out of artillery, America's just going to give us more. It, suddenly that doesn't, that doesn't go anymore. Because America's out of missiles. Well, not yet. This keeps up, we just might. America's out of 155 millimeter artillery shells. We know that for certain. And when I say out, I mean really, really low. To, you know, it's, it's hard to hit zero when you're kind of producing some. But we're, we're out. We're, we're talking about sending F-16s to Ukraine. Most of our Air Force is so maintenance heavy that a lot of it can't fly at any given at any given point in time. You can only have certain numbers of them up. So if we're if we're giving up a few dozen of them to Ukraine, and there's talk of two, we'll see how many actually makes it over there. But if we're giving up F-16s to Ukraine, well, that means the operational fleet of our aircraft is going to get eaten up faster. And if we're going to give them to Taiwan, it's going to get eaten up faster. Well, if you're dependent on a foreign country for all of your military equipment and that foreign country for whatever reason can't supply it to you forget the blockade of taiwan because we know taiwan's going to come under blockade when this war happens forget the blockade let's it, it, let's just pretend that everything goes perfectly and america's is able to supply taiwan with all the weapons and ammunition we need if we don't have shit to give then they're fucked what do you what do you say to that oops we ran out, we gave it all to Ukraine, sorry. All, all that time we spent trying to get you to buy American weapons and American equipment and American made this and American made that just to screw you in the end with our own decisions because we gave it away to someone else. All the, the, the same equipment that you needed because you're dependent on us completely because we demanded it of you. Oh, sorry, I guess you don't have sovereignty anymore. You're going to get annexed now. And that's, that's a very unsavory position to be in. So it, it just adds to 
my confusion, and maybe it's just because I have the privilege of living in a country that can produce all of its own military equipment, but why would you ever want to be dependent on a foreign country to supply you with your military equipment? Like, I, I get that America was when we were, you know, the 13 colonies, and even in the early Republic period, we had to import a lot of our weapons. But if you have the ability to make your own stuff, I mean, Taiwan is wealthy, okay? Let's, let's not pretend that Taiwan is some backwater. They are more than wealthy enough to manufacture their own equipment. Why would you not depend on what you can make yourself and have stockpiles of the materials necessary to make them and have stockpiles of the equipment itself? Why would you depend on American conventional machines of warfare when you know that the Chinese are just going to outgun you regardless? It, sure, it, it'd be nice to have a squadron or two of fighters but you know damn well the Chinese are just going to, for every one fighter that Taiwan puts up, the Chinese can at least put up 50. That's, you're just not going to win the war in the air. Don't, don't, why would you bother trying to do that? You can't do that. You need to be focused on missiles. The, the meta, so to speak, for modern war is missiles. Hypersonics, anti-ship, anti-air, surface to air, air, air to surface, air to air. It's all about the missiles. Scud missiles. <laughs> multiple rock multiple launch rocket systems. Thermobarics. It's all about missiles. Anti-tanks, missiles. It's not a, it's not an artillery shell anymore. It's a missile. Everything is a missile. Why are you trying to build planes to fight someone who is always going to have more planes than you? and more air defense missiles to shoot down your planes the second you put them up in the air. Taiwan is 100 miles from China. That means everything that they put up into the skies can and will be shot down by land-based air defense systems in China. Why would you bother having an air force uh, other than to patrol your own coastline? Like, like that's it. And patrol it during peacetime because that's all you're going to be able to do. Anything else and you're just getting shot down. Why would you try to have a, a surface fleet? Why not have submarines where you can station and nuclear submarines at that? Okay, now, now we're cooking. You could station them at various points throughout the South China Sea, throughout the, the Philippine Sea, the East China Sea, all around Taiwan. You could put them at strategic choke points like the Straits of Malacca. And whenever you know that a Chinese ship is coming through, you can, you can actually do some damage. Germany didn't have a, a, a large navy in either World War I or World War II. Well, actually, they had a, a sizable navy in World War One, but they didn't have much for World War Two. And even during World War One, it was the submarines that did all the work. World War Two, they they went all in on the submarines. They didn't even bother with the navy, the surface fleet. Submarines today are even more potent than they were before because you can keep them out at sea for longer. They they don't need to be refueled as often. They can dive deeper, and they are quieter. Now, if you have a nuclear one, it's probably going to be louder. So perhaps you'd want the diesel ones. It, it really depends on which one you want. Do you want the range and to be able to stay out at sea for longer periods of time? Or do you want to be quieter? Which, whichever the trade-off is, the submarine is the better choice for a nation like Taiwan than a surface fleet. It's certainly a better choice than having an air force. Because it you, as of now, we can't really hit a submarine with a missile. You, have to throw a bunch of depth charges at it or maybe hope that it hits a mine somewhere which the chinese might be more successful in because they have the resources to do that 
but at the very least give yourself a fighting chance, why would you be dependent on American weapons? Completely. It, why, forget American, why would you be dependent on foreign weapons to begin with? It, it doesn't make sense to me. And thinking about all the equipment we've given to Ukraine and the fact that we're now out of these artillery shells, just imagine being in the shoes of someone depending on America. Just imagine being in the shoes. It's like, okay, you're going to guarantee my security, and then I'm going to sit here and watch you give away everything that you have that you w would be using to guarantee that very same security. I'm watching you give that away to someone else, knowing that if I get attacked, I'm just screwed because all of that, which you were going to use for me, is now in the hands of someone else, and you can't get it back and you can't produce enough of it in time to help me. Like, that's that's a really shitty situation to be in. And I honestly don't envy the Taiwanese in that regard. But it, it's, it just shocks me now that the Taiwanese are only just now coming around to the idea of a, of a, of a porcupine strategy where it's, we're going we're gonna to double down on cheap, uh, effective weaponry that we can use to hassle and harass the Chinese and the Chinese Navy, we're going to use lots of mines, lots of missiles, and you know, we're going to we're going to use bunkers and trenches and underground networks and all these things that they had seventy years to think about that they're only just now getting around to. Yeah, so in, in a way, I'm almost like, okay, well, it sucks to suck. <laughs> I mean, uh, granted, I was already there, but it it how did you waste seventy years not even thinking about? How did, where did the time go? And how do you still not get it? I, I don't understand. And maybe I just won't. But that, that's enough about Taiwan. I just uh, decided to go dumping my thoughts on that. But we have the OIC, that's the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, suspending Swedish, uh, suspending the Swedish special envoy to the OIC. And they did this over Quran burnings, which happened in Stockholm, the capital city of Sweden. There were also uh, a number of Quran burnings in Denmark. It seems that the Nordics are rising up against Islam. We'll see what happens in the rest of, say, the West. Uh, I think France is going to be a, a major indicator of where the rest of the continent of Europe goes. But... It's interesting to see this development because, you know, for the longest time, people just weren't allowed to question the, question the idea that we could have our own religious beliefs and that we don't necessarily have to accept the religious beliefs of other people, especially if those other people happen to be of a darker pigment than you. But now that paradigm is ending. And something new is going to take its place. Is it Christianity? Is it secularism? We'll just have to wait and see. I think it'll be Christianity. At least in America, it will be. But we will see. We will see. It's a very peculiar situation that has, that has arisen in the far north of Europe. So we'll see what comes of this. We have wildfires causing the evacuation of the Greek island of Corfu. We have the Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney announcing a multilateral immigration agreement with 20 other Mediterranean countries, not just in Europe, but in North Africa and in the Middle East. Uh, you know, because 
there are a couple there are a couple of Middle Eastern states that do have coastal frontage in the Mediterranean, like Israel and Lebanon. So it seems that the Italians are trying to make a well they call it a, a Rome process. They call, they call it a Rome process. So it's probably like a uh I almost said customs union. It'd be more like a more like an immigration union yeah over anything because uh, i i'd imagine that the north african states like mexico don't appreciate a whole bunch of randoms showing up at their border just to pass through and use up all their amenities and resources so that they can get to a, di- a completely different country i i'm pretty sure that they appreciate that even less than the mexicans do and to be quite honest mexico is under a lot better circumstances than a lot of these countries so i think this is a w move if your goal is to curb immigration illegal immigration coming into southern europe through italy through the mediterranean then you work with your neighbors whom the immigrants have to travel through it's literal common sense now will we implement something like this in america only when trump gets reelected, because we know biden sure as hell ain't but this is it. This is how you stop illegal immigration. It was always this simple. You work with your neighbors. You enforce your border and you work with your neighbors. Now, I still have yet to see the Italian Navy show up to do anything meaningful. Uh, but hey, I guess in that regard, they're just as good as the vaunted British Royal Navy, who somehow manages to do worse. <laughs> but yeah. It's it's happening now. At first, uh, if you remember, a few about a year or so ago, it was Italy, Spain, Greece, and I think Malta, Malta or Cyprus, I forget which one, but it was four European countries working together to sort of get a grip on immigration. Now that sort of immigration coalition, that control, immigration control coalition, uh, so to speak has expanded to 20 countries throughout the entirety of the Mediterranean. This is how you get control of illegal immigration. And surprisingly, the EU is in favor of this. If you remember a few months back, they had that strategic partnership that they had negotiated with Tunisia, the the main launching off point of a lot of these illegal immigrants into Southern Europe, uh, primarily into Italy through Tunisia. Because if you look at a map, you see that Tunisia sort of jumps out from the African continent and it points directly at italy and it's you know it's really close it's not that that far of a journey to get from tunisia to sicily which is the the island on the southern part of the the boot that is italy it's also the reason uh, the the romans didn't like carthage very much from a strategic point of view because it was, was a little too close for the liking but this is how you do it and immigration becomes such a big enough problem that even the people who were pro-open borders, and on paper still are pro-open borders, are now having to concede that the pro-immigration control people, the pro-borders people, were right. And now policy is shifting accordingly. So we will see if any material gains comes of this, because it's one thing to say that you have a coalition of 20 countries to control immigration. It's another thing to actually control the immigration. So we will see. We will see. 
uh, we have the UAE also being a part of that, offering $100 million to help countries affected by illegal immigration. And from my understanding, this is primarily countries where the, Ill- the illegal immigrants are moving through, not where they're going. Because where they're going is to Europe, and it, it wouldn't make sense to give $100 million to the Europeans. So I think that this money is primarily going to be given to like countries like Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, etc. Egypt, you know. So even the UAE is a part of this. We have Russia offering BRICS members an opportunity to have a module for themselves on Russia's future space station, which they plan to launch sometime in the second half of the decade, like 2026, 2027 or so on. Uh, So that's interesting. More space news. We, We do like space. We do like space. And last but not least, we have Blinken saying that Russia has failed to achieve its objectives in Ukraine and that Ukraine has retaken substantial territories. Now, I'm not sure what map Mr. Blinken is looking at, but it is nice to be back into the realm of normality where I can I can uh, I can shit on him for being a, a, <laughs> a very useless statesman, quote unquote. Now that now this these statements makes him the third. I believe the third person so far to say something so stupid within our government. I'll just say that much because before him, it was Lloyd Austin. And before Lord Austin, it was Mark Milley. I cannot wait to read their words back to you all when the war is over. Cause well, if you're still listening to this podcast, you and I both know that those Ukrainians ain't going to win this war. So it'll be very interesting to see all of this, all of these, this talk, all this yap, yap, yapping come back to roost. Not for us, of course. You know, <laughs> we got the story right. And honestly, it wasn't that difficult. But for them, those who got it wrong, those who went along with the propaganda, and quite frankly, those who lied to perpetuate the propaganda. But that's the propaganda press for you. But we'll get into the meat of this episode in uh, just a moment. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of today's episode. And we'll start off with Russia beginning a strategic missile bombing campaign of the port city of Odessa, which is the, the large city in the south of Ukraine that was previously used for the export of a lot of their grain and for the import of a lot of the of a lot of their, well, their imports. It's the largest port city that they have. Russia's now begun bombing this. Now, if you'll remember, if you'll remember, with the grain deal, Russia expressly restricted itself and refrained from bombing ships going in or out of Ukraine. That was part of the grain deal. As part of a, the Ukrainians will be allowed to get their grain out of the country. And honestly, a lot of other agricultural products out of the country in exchange for Russia also having similar access to those routes. And, well... The grain deal is over now, and we talked about that in the last episode. The Russians citing multiple violations on the part of the Ukrainians in that, one, they were using these same safe passage routes to import and smuggle weapons into Ukraine, and there were also stipulations that Western countries would, excuse me, that Western countries would lift their sanctions on Russian agricultural producers. 
so that Russia would be more easily able to export its own agricultural products through the same shipping lanes and etc. That didn't happen. So you combine weapons smuggling into Ukraine and the West again refusing to honor their end of the deal. And now Russia backed out of the deal. And with Russia backing out of the deal, they begun bombing the port city of Odessa. They began shooting at ships in the Black Sea, which just goes to show how much this deal was more favorable to the Ukrainians than necessarily the Russians, because the Russians are still going to export their grain. They're still going to export their agricultural products. Essentially, this was just a litmus test to see if we were trustworthy enough to be able to honor a deal. Because the Russians had an out. They had a back door. It was their own interbank payment system. It was the SIPs, the cross-border interbank payment system uh, that, that China has. They already had multiple other means of exporting their grain. They didn't necessarily need us to unsanction them from SWIFT, but that was a part of the, the deal, the, the grain deal. And we didn't do that. Ukraine used those safe harbors to import weapons. At least this is what the Russians allege and accused them of. And now the deal is done, which means that Ukrainian shipping is once again fair game for Russia. And instead of just randomly bombing ships, they're just bombing the ports. And I said that they were attacking Ukrainian ships. Um, that was, uh, I got ahead of myself. But <laughs> unless you count ships in port, in which case, oh yeah, they're definitely being hit. But the Russians have really just been targeting the ports so that the ships have nowhere to go. And you can't use them. You can't use the port. And it's not even just Odessa. It's a number of other port cities along Ukraine's Black Sea coast. The Black Sea coast that they have left is Russia's sort of stolen half of it. Uh, not even counting Crimea. <coughs> not even counting Crimea. Excuse me. Oh my goodness. But with this, uh, this bombing campaign, which is now... Uh, taking all of Ukraine's Black Sea coastline by storm, we can once again see that Russia is in fact not running out of ammunition or missiles. And instead, this demonstrates the degradation of Ukraine's air defense systems and demonstrates that Ukraine is the one out of ammunition, specifically air defense missiles. And when I say out of, of course, I mean that they're just really, really, really low, such that it's almost strategically irrelevant. They're the ones running out of ammo because they can't defend them. The fact that these bombs are hitting, these missiles are hitting their targets means that the Ukrainian air defenses was incapable of taking down these missiles. And that's a big deal because Ukraine fortified its capital, Kiev, and the city of Odessa. Those are some of its most fortified places. And then, of course, the rest went to the front line. So for Odessa, of all places, to be coming under such heavy bombardment, hints at, again, the degradation of Ukraine's air defense. And now we're really, again, seeing the consequences of them running out. And we got reports that they ran out back in, like, uh, towards March because of that missile bombing campaign that the Russians have been un undertaking since October of last year, 
where they were just randomly striking certain areas in Ukraine, largely targeting the power grid. The Ukrainians would have to respond, and then they would just target the areas where the Ukrainians rebuilt. And this gradually wore down Ukraine's ability to defend itself because it ate away at the stores of missiles that the Ukrainians had available to combat these Russian missiles and these Russian bombardments. And now that they're out, the Russians have impunity. The Russian Air Force has become a lot more active ever since March and April of this year when the Ukrainian air defenses effectively evaporated. So we saw that happening. We saw the Russian Air Force get more active because for the longest time I was wondering where they were. And then they, they showed me where they were. They were just sitting there waiting for Ukraine's air defenses to be weak enough for them to get through. Now they're doing routine bombing missions close to the front line, you know, not, not going very deep into Ukraine. They just use missiles for that. And now here again, we see, uh, well, before this, we saw that the Russians were bombing Ukrainian munitions uh, warehouses and their stores of ammunition, which, again, Ukraine wasn't able to defend because they didn't have the air defense. Now their port cities are under attack. The Russians are just increasingly having greater and greater impunity when it comes to striking Ukraine with missiles and with planes. And that's because Ukraine's air defense has been so heavily degraded that they can't mount effective resistance. And all this, and these are the same air defense systems, mind you, that we were supposed to believe took down a Kinzhal hypersonic missile. And we're supposed to believe also that these are the same air, that these air defenses were able to routinely shoot down 90% or more of the missiles that Russia sent at them every time the Russians did a, a, a bombardment. The, the, these are the same people, the, the same Ukrainian soldiers, the, the same air defense systems that we're supposed to believe did those things in the past are now incapable of stopping these missiles. So either they were just great and now they're out of ammo or somebody was lying. And it's probably some combination of the two, probably some combination of the two. Uh, and I'll say this, America cannot shoot down a hypersonic missile. So the idea that someone armed with our weapons is going to be able to shoot down a hypersonic missile is nonsense. So another layer of propaganda gets dismantled by the, the facts on the ground. What we also have here is that Russia, and this is sort of a separate story that is related to this one, we have Russia offering to give grain to countries for free. And this was a very interesting thing. And from it, I have extrapolated. Now, this is speculation here, but, you know, come along for the ride with me. I think... Uh, and I'll just get into what I think the measure is designed to do. They're giving away grain for free. Now, this is likely a measure designed, one, to keep the multipolar world on board with Russia continuing the war. Because Russia, as long as they are on side with Russia, Russia can take their time. The second they, they get impatient and they grow tired of the war, Russia starts. Russia has to amp it up. They have to put more pressure on Ukraine. They have to wrap it up. Uh, but so long as the multipolar world is on Russia's side, the Russians can take their time. So this this free grain deal, to replace the grain deal, the free grain deal, 
is probably one meant to keep the multipolar world on side with Russia. And it's number two, it's meant to allow Russian grain producers to take up Ukraine's market share around the world because who's going to say no to free, especially if you can't even get the Ukrainian grain to begin with. You're, you're just going to opt out of Ukrainian grain and opt into Russian grain. The Russians are offering it for free, so you may as well. So keep the multipolar world on Russia's side. Allow Russian grain producers to eat up Ukraine's market share around the world. Uh, and three, it's probably there is probably a humanitarian aspect to this as well, that they just don't want people to start dying of starvation. Because a lot of countries in the third world who are not necessarily dependent on Russian grain are dependent on Ukrainian grain. So if the, the grain deal is now dead in the water, uh, no pun intended, someone's got to fill the void. And the Russians said, hey, it may as well be us. This will be beneficial to us in the future. At least that's what my assumption of their intentions are here. So here's what I believe that this is meant to do. Uh, well, that that's what I believe it's meant to do. But here's what I think it means. The fact that they're giving away this grain for free tells us that Russia feels confident in the strength of their economy, that they can just go giving away one of their largest exports, uh, at, at least to some degree, they're giving it away for free. To what degree, I'm not entirely sure. It also tells us that Russia likely doesn't anticipate the war continuing for more than, say, a few more years. And I say that because if they're giving grain away for free, then that means that Russia is going to be subsidizing the production of that grain because it's not going to it's not going to be sold. It's going to be uh, but it has to be paid for. So if it's not going to be sold, then it won't. The Russian government has to foot the bill or else you're not going to have any grain to give away for free. And given that post-Soviet Russia has avoided subsidizing things that it feels it doesn't need to subsidize, i.e. not paying for things that it feels it doesn't need to pay for then this free grain arrangement is also most likely going to be temporary. I believe it's going to be a temporary measure that will probably end around the same time that the war does. And unless Russia plans to subsidize grain shipments in perpetuity, which is what happen if the war were to become a frozen one, like some of these analysts who think that we're going to freeze the conflict. If the war becomes a frozen one, well, then this grain, this free grain deal would have to go on forever. And then I don't think that the Russians would have done this deal if they expected that the war was going to become a frozen one. But what it tells me is that they probably don't plan on continuing this free grain deal for more than a few years either. Why? Because the war is going to be over in a few years or less, which means that, well, Russia will have access to all that Ukrainian grain and they can just export it to all the places that used to get from Ukraine. It's the same grain, just from a different supplier now. So now you don't need us to give it away for free because uh, all the grain's here. It's right here. So you're just going to be paying us for it now instead of Ukraine. And, oh, would you look at that? You were already buying grain from us because we were getting it for free. Well, now we have more grain to give. So it's it's going to be cheaper because there's more, there's more of it. But, you know, you're going to have to pay a price for it. And I think that that's how this is going to go down. I think that this free grain deal tells us that Russia does not anticipate 
the war going on for very much longer because I don't think they would like to subsidize something that they can produce quite well uh, for an extended period of time. I don't think that they want to subsidize grain production, especially since that's one of the few things they don't they really don't need to do. So with the death of the grain deal, Russia now targeting Ukrainian shipping facilities and rendering their ports inoperable, combined with Russia, you know, taking up, filling the void left by Ukrainian grain, that's inevitably going to be left from Ukrainian grain just not even being able to get out to the wider markets, uh, even in its diminished numbers, we saw how the the production fell to like half. And then below that, when the war started, the production of Ukrainian grain. All this comes together to tell us that the Russians are gearing up for the final phase. Because now with the ports being shut down, we go back to siege warfare. As I had thought that the Russians were gonna go for in the beginning, when I had to, when I had to make my first readjustment to the way in which the Russians were conducting the war, and it was siege warfare. It, it was largely that was largely siege war. We were, we were looking at the siege of Mariupol. We were looking at the siege of Bakhmut. We were look at the time we were looking at a, a semi siege of you know Kiev. Although the Russians pulled out of that, as per that draft treaty, but we were looking at a lot of sieges. And we were seeing the power of the urban center as a defensive structure. So given that the war was a siege war being played out with lots of artillery, where you're sieging down cities, you're sieging down the enemy trenches, you're essentially sieging down an entire countryside, which is what the Russians have been forced to do, then the natural extension of that would be to siege down not just the countryside, but the country itself. You know, blockade their ability to export their goods, bombing the railways, which we saw Russia doing as well, bombing their energy sectors, taking away their, stripping them of their manufacturing so that they can't produce, which is uh, large, large portions of Ukraine's manufacturing is in the Donbass, which has been stripped away from them. Sieging down their agriculture. You're, you're taking away Ukrainian agricultural land, large swaths of it is now under Russian control. And then you bomb the ports. I thought that Russia was going to go for a sort of anaconda strategy around the entirety of Ukraine, where they would just gradually strangle the Ukrainian economy as the war went on, especially since Russia's economy was still kicking. They didn't do that. They opted for arguably a much more humanitarian role. But now the grain deal is dead and Russia is tightening the noose. Now they're bombing more, they're bombing Ukrainian warehouses where they're keeping their ammunition. They're bombing Ukrainian port facilities. They're probably going to go back to bombing Ukrainian railways when they, you know, when they feel like putting an end to this thing and really destroying and degradating, degradating, degrading Ukraine's ability to move things around within their own country. So they have to use roads and dirt roads and fields, which are just not conducive to the movement of heavy vehicles, especially during uh, when it's muddy, which is great for Russia. 
because the Russians have their, have their infrastructure and their logistics in, in order. I think that we're going to witness the siege of an entire country now. That's what I think. And I think that with the death of the grain deal and the policies that Russia is implementing to replace it, I think that we're seeing the war start to enter into its final stages. That's going to mean a siege of not Kiev, not of Bakhmut, not of Mariupol, but a siege of Ukraine as a nation. And it's not a siege that I see Ukraine surviving. But there might be an out for some of the Ukrainians. There just might be an out for them. Probably, maybe. But there just might be an out for the Ukrainians. Which leads us to our next story which is again the talk of Poland intervening in Western Ukraine. Now, we've heard stories of this before, the, the UN peacekeeper story, Russian, uh, not Russian, Polish mobilization, they're trying to double their army to 300,000 troops, the Polish sending, sending in a, a force to sort of secure Western Ukraine. We, we've heard rumblings of this story multiple times throughout the course of the war. But now it's sort of come back up again, and even Putin has made some comments on it, which uh, in tandem with my understanding that the Russians would really appreciate not having to occupy the westernmost portions of Ukraine, I think his comments paint us a very interesting picture. And when I when I lay all this out to you, you'll understand why I'm I'm still talking about Ukraine potentially having an out here, because it's it's not necessarily a, a military intervention where Poland comes in to start fighting Russian troops. Because uh, Putin says that if Ukraine chooses to give away parts of its country to Poland, then that is a matter between Ukraine and Poland. And that was that that was one statement he made out of a, a longer string of comments. Now. He, in particular, sort of uh, brought up the idea that, hey, if you take this land, because he was he was talking about this from a sort of a cautionary position, like, hey, if, if Ukraine wants to give away land to Poland, then they can give it away. But don't be surprised when the Germans start asking for their eastern territories back as well. If you're going to get your eastern territories back, then why? Then don't be surprised when the Germans start asking for their stuff back. Silesia, Prussia. But the fact that Putin mentioned this and said it in the way that he did, where if Ukraine chooses to give away parts of its country to Poland, then that's a matter between Ukraine and Poland. And, and he was referring to the Ukrainians that would do this as traitors to their nation. But the fact that he said this essentially invites Poland to take Western parts of Ukraine so that Russia doesn't have to. Now, the caveat, of course being that Ukraine has to give that territory away first. Poland can't just walk into, into Ukraine and go, hey, this is our, our territory now, Russia, you have to respect this. I don't think that that's the deal. The deal is that if Ukraine gives the territory away, then it's, it's Poland's. And if the territory belongs to Poland, well, then you're not sending troops into Ukraine. You're just moving your troops into the, the easternmost parts of Poland. 
And that sort of plays into the idea that we've been talking about for a few weeks now, the idea that Ukraine might end up partitioned when this war is over. And it looks more likely by the day. Because now this potential threat of a Polish intervention in Western Ukraine has, with a, with a diplomatic sleight of hand from Putin, has been turned into a potential opportunity for Russia. Depending on the process, it all depends on the process. If Ukraine gives the land away in a formal manner to Poland, well, then that land is no longer Ukrainian, it belongs to Poland, which means that Russia doesn't have to take it to finish the war, and Russia didn't want Western Ukraine to begin with. So, and now that threat of NATO coming to blows with Russia in the event that it goes down this way also becomes mitigated because you avoid a war between Russia and Poland, which becomes a war between Russia and NATO. You, and you solve the issue of Western Ukraine, at least on the part of the Russians. And hey, there's even, a, there's even an out in that the West can say, look, we saved a piece of Ukraine. Now, whether or not the Polish decide to give up that piece of Ukraine and make it an independent state is a completely different matter. I'm not entirely certain that they will. But it's there now. It's This is open discourse between world leaders now. So the, the, the post-war game is starting to come into the picture. Now, granted, we know that the West doesn't have an endgame. The United States doesn't have an endgame. It's just give more weapons and money to Ukraine. But the Russians do. And, and this hinting at a post-war partition of Ukraine between Russia and at least some of the Eastern European states, in this case, almost exclusively Poland, in that the Poland would get the Polish would get their cut first, ironically. But like Putin warned, this would also open up the question of the German-Polish border. As Poland, following World War II, was given historically German lands, what we used to call Prussia and Silesia, those territories were given to Poland, uh, except for Kaliningrad, Kaliningrad, which used to be Königsberg or East Prussia, that was split between the Soviet states of Russia and Lithuania. But before World War II, Poland had a lot of territory in the east, which is now, as of today, part of Belarus, Lithuania, and Ukraine. But when the Red Army came rolling through, well, honestly, after Poland got partitioned between Russia and Germany with Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and the German invasion, well, the, the joint German-Soviet invasion of Poland, people, it's overlooked that the Soviets invaded from the, the back door when the war began and Poland was partitioned. The partition territories remain part of the Soviet Union. It's just that after World War II, when Germany was defeated, Poland was given former German territories, again, Silesia and Prussia, in exchange for them renouncing their claims on the territories that were now part of the Soviet Union. Again, modern-day Belarus, Lithuania, and Ukraine. 
because if you go back in time, you'll see that the city of Vilnius, which is in Lithuania now, the city of Vilnius used to be a part of Poland. Poland's border used to jut upwards, northwards into what is now Lithuania. So if Poland takes this territory from Ukraine, territory that they were, you know, the territory that was taken from them by the Soviets, and which they were compensated for by, you know, forcing Germany to give up lands to Poland, if Poland starts getting the, these territories in the east back, well, that opens up the, the door to questions about Germany getting its eastern territories back. Now, whether that's Silesia or Prussia, or it remains to be seen. But that question pops back up into the discourse. And that's not necessarily a question that I think the Polish want to answer again. Uh, see if you remember the case, the case for war uh, for between Nazi Germany and Poland was uh, over the Polish, uh, the false flag attack on a, a, a station, <laughs> a broadcast station in Eastern Germany. But Germany wanted Koenigs, uh, not Koenigsberg, they wanted Danzig back, which used to be a part of Prussia. It was taken away from Germany after World War One, so that the Polish could have access to the, the Baltic Sea. So the Poles are very aware of how the Germans can be about former German territory. So the second you start opening up the issue of Eastern territories for Poland, that opens up the, the door for conversations about the Eastern territories of Germany. So here, if we speculate for just a bit here, what if in the long list of considerations that Russia uh, undoubtedly has to take into account with this war ranging, ranging from how NATO will respond to certain actions of the Russian military in Ukraine to how Ukraine will continue the war and by what means they'll use to fight it. Uh, are they going to continue using their tactics? Are they going to switch to partisan war if they're defeated on the battlefield? You know, uh, to the wider multipolar world and what they think of Russia and the war in Ukraine, because that's a major consideration for the Russians, to what Russia will do with Ukrainian territories that they take. There's a, a very long list of considerations that the Russians and the Russian military, quite frankly, have undoubtedly had to go through and are probably still going through. And out of that list, Russia has to be also considering the end game, not just how they're going to end the war or what achieving their objectives looks like, denazification, demilitarization of Ukraine, but what will their new borders be when the war is over? Are they going to take just the Donbass and the territories that they've already annexed plus Crimea? Are they going to take everything to the east of the Dnieper River? Are they going to take Odessa? Or are they just going to build a land bridge from where they are now to Odessa and get to Transnistria and leave the rest of Ukraine intact? Are they going to take everything east and Odessa? Are they going to take everything? Are they going to take everything except for the western parts? Are they going to take Kiev? Are they going to split it up with between them and Belarus? Like, how are they going to do this? 
how what's their border going to look like? That that's one of the things they have to think about, as well as how will Western, Central, and Eastern Europe respond to an enlarged Russian Federation? Because Russia's going to get a lot bigger once they're once they're done with Ukraine, and a lot of the countries in particularly in Eastern Europe, my goodness, especially the Poles and the Lithuanians, they have been all in on this war against Russia. So when Russia wins and they annex vast swaths of Ukrainian territory and get vastly larger themselves in terms of their geographic area, that's going to be off-putting to a lot of these same countries who were just all in on the a war which is was meant to be the destroyer of the Russian state. That's what this war was meant to do. That's what arming Ukraine was meant to do. And they failed. They've already failed, but the degree of their failure won't really be seen until we see what the border looks like. And that border is going to be Russia enlarged greatly, almost all the way up to the Russia's border is going to be pushed all the way almost out to where Belarus's border is with Poland. And that's going to be extremely off-putting to, uh, well, the Poles and the Lithuanians, who were all in on this war. That's going to be extremely off-putting to every single country in Eastern Europe who went along with this plan to destroy Russia, essentially. So how they will respond... And how Western Europe will respond, how will the United States respond to that, also has to be taken into consideration. Are we going to are we going to declare Cold War 2.0 and try to instill an iron curtain starting at the new Russian border? Are we going to concede defeat, which is unlikely? Are we going to go trying to build some new containment policy of Russia? If, if so, how exactly is that going to go down? Are we going to go meddling in Europe? Are we going to go meddling in the Middle East? Are we going to provoke another war? Are we going to get Georgia to attack Russia, uh, thinking that Russia is going to be in their moment of weakness? Are we going to attempt another coup in Kazakhstan? Are we going to attempt to assassinate Putin or Lukashenko? How will this play out? Russia has to be thinking about all these things. So what their borders will look like and how other countries will respond are undoubtedly things that they have to take into consideration. Because if you're going to change the status quo this this dramatically, as Russia is inevitably going to do, and quite frankly already has, then you're going to need to make sure that at least some other countries have a stake in the new status quo after the war is over, so that out of their own interests, they will uphold and maintain it, uh, uphold and maintain the redrawn borders of Europe that are beneficial to Russia. And, the, and an easy way to do that if you're at war and you're taking land by conquest is by giving away land to the smaller European states in the East who will end up bordering Russia. Once this war is over, it should Russia take all of Ukraine's land. If Russia took all of Ukraine, they suddenly have a border with Hungary, Slovakia, Poland. And once they take over, you know, the Odessa area, they'd have a border as well with Romania and Moldova. Now, Moldova is not going to get Transnistria back, but perhaps they can get the southern territories, uh, the territories directly to their south, not in, not Odessa, but, you know, directly to their south as compensation. 
And now Moldova is no longer a landlocked country. And hell, the Russians might even throw in uh, some investment, some investment projects into port facilities for the new Moldovan coastline. Now that's an easy bribe. Transnistria, this thin strip of land that the Moldovans don't really have jurisdiction over anyway, in exchange for a coastline and, quite frankly, m- more land. That's one hell of a bribe. They can they could do that. I think that they might. That'll give Moldova a stake in the new post-war order. And Moldova then becomes a buffer state between Russia and Romania. Oh, bam. That's one state down. If you get Hungary and Slovakia in, suddenly Hungary, if they have a border with Russia, they can they can join in on the multipolar world. Instead of, you know, playing footsies and saying, oh, we... We're gonna be, we're gonna be, we're gonna have this position on Russia where we don't hate Russia. We want to do business with Russia, but every time something comes up with the EU where they want to do something negative to Russia, we we're gonna go along with that. If Hungary has a border with Russia instead of being landlocked by purely NATO and NATO-aligned countries, then they can have their own pipeline with Russia. They can start to make their own deals with Russia, like we know that they want to. And perhaps that might even include a Russian security guarantee. Who knows? And if that is the case, even if you, Hungary doesn't necessarily get land in the treaty, a Russian security guarantee. Oh my goodness. Well, now you have security guarantees from NATO and Russia. If either one attacks you, you're safe. <laughs> well, in theory, of course. But Hungary might just be content with having being able to have direct access to Russian energy and Russian trade, which is, again, something that they want to have because Russia gives them access to the wider world in a way that they would prefer to having to go through the, the endless lectures that they get with the rest of Europe and from the United States. Slovakia, I'm sure you could offer them a little bit of land. Poland, if you gave them a little bit of land as well, that gives them an out. And therein lies the out for Ukraine that I mentioned. Because if Russia marches all the way to Lviv, then they would be the ones who have to go redistributing land. Now, perhaps you can choose to give that away, but if you're the one who who has the land to redistribute it, then you're going to be the one who has to bear all the resentment of whoever doesn't get what they wanted. Because, you know, they're going to be looking at you, hoping that you're going to give them what they want. And if you don't give them what they want, you know, I'm talking about the East European states. Romania is going to want to cut. You know, Hungary is going to want to cut. Slovakia, Poland, they're all going to want to cut. Ukraine's going to want something, but they're not going to get it. Everyone's going to want their cut. And if you don't give it to them, well, they're they're going to hate you. But, but... If Poland is, through the consent of the Ukrainian government, given territory, Ukrainian territory goes to Poland before the war is over, then that means, because it's not like Ukraine's going to give Poland control of Odessa, no, they're going to give Poland the territories closer to Lviv, which is, again, in the far western reaches of Ukraine. If Ukraine gives Poland territories, 
before the Russians can get to those territories. And Putin has already said that if Ukraine chooses to do this, that's the business of Ukraine and Poland. And that Russia will not intervene in that. Then that means Poland's going to be the one taking up the territory. And if you look at a map, you see that uh, if Poland were to be given those territories, it would effectively cut off the rest of Eastern Europe from even having a border with Russia, depending on how, you know, how far into Ukraine the, the Poles get this territory, how much of you, how much of Western Ukraine that Ukraine chooses to give them, if they choose to give it to them at all, you know, that, that's the big if here. But since we're talking about it, and since it's come up as a possibility, and even Putin is bothered to make statements on it, it's something to talk about. Because if the, the greater Lviv area is given to Poland by Ukraine and Russia chooses to just leave it alone, which Putin says he would do, and then Ukraine loses the war. Now, the only countries that would even theoretically be allowed to have a partition of the Russian territories, the, you know, the territories of Ukraine that Russia would take by the end of the war, the only countries that would even theoretically get a say in that would be Moldova and Romania and Belarus. Moldova, Romania, Belarus. Because Belarus is along northern border with Ukraine. Will, will either of them get anything? Uh, well, Belarus might. I mean, they're going to become one with Russia anyway, so it almost doesn't matter. But they might get some territory in the northern parts of Ukraine. Moldova, I see getting more than Romania. Because then that creates a buffer state who was already m more friendly towards Russia. The, not the government right now, but the, the people in Romania are much more n n friendly. I, I say much more friendly, but at a, at a bare minimum, they do not share the straight up racism <laughs> towards Russians that you'll find anywhere else in Europe. Well, with the exception of maybe the Spanish and the Portuguese. You know? They're in a world of their own, you know. Sometimes you forget they're NATO, and I honestly believe that they would like to keep it that way. But Moldova doesn't have Russophobia. They they really don't have that issue. Their government might, but the people don't. So if you bribe them with land, then even the government would have to go. Oh well, you know what? Maybe those Russians aren't that bad. And then Moldova becomes your new buffer state between you and Romania, a NATO country. And you have Transnistria, because you've annexed all this land. And then that's it. Romania doesn't get a say because, well, who cares? <laughs> who cares? That there was only so much land that the Russians would be able to give if the western reaches of Ukraine are already given away to Poland. Now, all the East European states, you know, Hungary, Slovakia, and Romania, they're going to be looking at Poland instead of Russia, because the territory that they could have had, if you, again, if you look at a map of the geography of where Ukraine's border touches these countries, if Poland owns that territory instead of Russia, well, then Poland would be the one responsible for giving away that territory. And if they just choose not to have it, and then everyone else is going to view the Polish as being land hungry and greedy. Now you create animosity within NATO, uh, between NATO states, 
all while keeping them off your tail. Of course, they're, they're going to be, uh, um, they're not going to be happy that Russia took all this land. They're not going to be happy that they took a, a big fat L in Ukraine. But the more pressing matter for the regular on the on the ground person is going to be, okay, you lost the war, but Poland gets to have all this territory and we get nothing. In ext- Poland, they get Lviv and we get nothing. That's not fair. So almost immediately, the animosity shifts away from Russia and onto Poland. If this goes through. And again, with Russia having to consider a lot of its possibilities and having to consider the end game and how that will shape itself out. This has likely been a consideration as well. At least Putin himself has considered this. Because Putin has brought up the history of the region. If you go annexing territories in the east, well, don't be surprised when the Germans come knocking. And if you annex territories in the east that other East European states could have had, don't be surprised when they get upset at you for robbing them of potential opportunities. Because I don't think the Poles are going to want to give the territory up. I'm going to be straight frank with you. I'm going to be straight up with you. I don't think they will want to give it up. I don't think they're going to want an, a semi-autonomous Ukrainian state. I don't think they're going to want to give up the land and share it with Hungary and Slovakia or Romania. I don't think that they're going to be very interested in doing any of that. I think they're going to want to keep it to themselves. And that's going to create a lot of animosity between them and the other East European states, again, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, while at the same time, they're, the very act of annexing the, ter- the territories of Western Ukraine, former Eastern territories of Poland, you will open up the question of Germany's Eastern territories, which were taken away from Germany and given to Poland as compensation for Poland losing precisely the territories that they are now taking back. Now everyone hates Poland instead of Russia. And now, with a simple offer of security guarantees, you can peel away the Polish from the NATO slash American sphere of influence. Because now they have a stake in the new order. They become a buffer state, a, a, a major buffer state between you and the rest of NATO. Even though they are in NATO, they become a major buffer state for you. Moldova is a buffer state for you. And just like that, Russia's new border is covered. And if Poland is on side with Russia instead of hostile to Russia, then that means Russia will have easier access getting to Kaliningrad because they have to move through Lithuania and Poland to get there. So if Poland is in a much more favorable, favorable position towards Russia, then at a bare minimum, that means that Russia can move through Poland to get to Kaliningrad. And considering that Lithuania tends to follow Poland these days, they, they've, they've sort of formed a, a pact between each other, an unofficial pact between one another. Well, then that would also alleviate the problem of Lithuania being overtly hostile to Russia as well, because they follow Poland. So will all this come to pass in the way that I've described? Maybe, maybe not. I've, I've gotten out of the business of predicting what the Russian military is going to do. But it might. And that's the way I see it going down in the event that Ukraine does give away territory to Poland. It will create a whole maelstrom of animosity 
that redirects all that negative emotions that people will have had aimed at Russia and at their own governments for getting them involved in Ukraine and for Russia invading Ukraine to begin with, all that animosity will suddenly be directed at Poland, which Russia can use to peel Poland away from the sphere of influence of the United States and of NATO, which means that they will have successfully achieved three buffer states, Turkey, not Romania, they'll have Turkey, Moldova, and Poland, all while the Russians get to sit back and consolidate their gains, consolidate Ukraine, finish the merger and acquisition that is the union state between them and Belarus, and form the Greater Russian Federation, and continue forming the Eurasian trade uh, bloc, the Eurasian Union, continue building the multipolar world, and through the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, through the Belt and Road. Think, oh my goodness, think about the Belt and Road in rebuilding Ukraine. Think about the Belt and Road in building those new port facilities that the Moldovans might have, if depending on whether or not they go along with getting a piece of Ukraine's land. And be, in exchange for being a buffer state between them and uh, between Russia and NATO. The Belt and Road wins, Russia wins, and depending on how things go, Poland might also become the third buffer state between Russia and NATO. And then that's Na- Russia's new frontier, their new enlarged frontier through the annexation of Belarus and Ukraine is covered through these buffer states. Could that just be me uh, hyper-speculating onto this? Of course it could, but you know, speculation is the fun part of geopolitics. But I don't think it's an unrealistic speculation. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but (laughs) at the very least, I'm happy you listened to me speculate. But it's a very interesting thing to think about especially as more and more talk of a Polish move into Western Ukraine uh, comes to the forefront. But ultimately, it's going to be another one of those wait and see type things. But depending on how the war progresses in Ukraine, and it's not necessarily progressing to Ukraine's advantage, we might not have to wait long to see what exactly happens there. We might not have to wait long at all, really. But now we get into the final story of today, which is a U.S. soldier crossing the DMZ into North Korea. A very strange and interesting story. We have Private Travis King, who has been captured by North Korean authorities after he made his way across the DMZ. Apparently, he he made a he made a break for it. And I, uh, I'll admit that I almost wrote down that his name was James Joseph Dresnok, who was another U.S. soldier who defected to North Korea, uh, except uh, Dresnok defected to North Korea in 1962. So that would have been quite the F up on my end. But interestingly enough, he was also a private. Uh, so that's a little, little fun fact there. But as of right now, we have not yet been updated on Travis King, his condition, or even if he's still alive. We assume he's still alive as the UN claims to be in talks with the North about Travis's defection and potentially returning him home. So, uh, well, and as well, the Biden administration has not made any formal uh, formal overtures to the North to try to get him back. Or at the very least, if they have made these overtures, they have not been public. So, 
Um, we have another prisoner of war, technically. Uh, I say technically because the war between the North and the South never really ended. And with that, the war between us and North Korea never really ended. Uh, yet another loose end, just flapping in the wind. But when I first read this, I was honestly more confused than anything else, and I'm still a little confused. One, why would you want to go to North Korea when you probably, if you're going to defect, you probably could have defected and stayed in the South. Oh, just saying. Uh, well, you know, maybe he's down with that communism. Maybe he's down with a largely agrarian lifestyle. You know, maybe, maybe he feels that he'll just blend in, you know. Or that they'll, or that the prison food in North Korea tastes better than scrap that he gets in the the lunch yards and the barracks. Whatever the case may be, all, we don't know the reason why he did this either. So this entire thing still remains a bit of a mystery here. Uh, so yeah, why would you want to go to North Korea was the first question on my mind, and two, how did he get past the minefields like and the barbed wire fences and the bullets? <laughs> how did you get past the people shooting at you to get? I uh, like he got through the DMZ intact enough to where he needed to be captured rather than buried because you have all these stories of people trying to leave north korea and a lot of them die in the process because they get either get shot or they step on a mine or they get caught in the barbed wire and then they get captured and sent back and then their entire their entire bloodline essentially gets purged from the annals of north korean history and so to see the the reverse go down and this guy just makes it through he had to have been studying those minefields and those guard posts so studiously. It's in my, it, had, it had to have been insane. It, it like you you don't just walk across the DMZ unless you're Trump, in which case you can you can do that four times in one day. But he was in active talks with Kim Jong Un when he was doing this. They walked across the the border check, the border you know the station where you're supposed to be doing these things. I mean, the border station is divided into two in the same room you can be in the same room but there's a line and you're not allowed to cross the border between the north and the south like that's the the level of division here and this guy just crosses the dmz and you know i'm again again why would he want to go how did he get past the bullets the barbed wire and the minefields um what was his motivation and, uh, these are lots of unanswered questions they remain unanswered as of now. Maybe we'll get some answers later on. But it's a very uh, weird story. So considering that a lot of the important questions regarding this remain unanswered, I will instead talk a little bit about some of the potential implications of this defection rather than the defection itself. These implications being that yet another flashpoint is being prepared for future conflict. Because if I'm being honest with you, a part of me doesn't believe he did this of his own volition. A part of me believes that this is a stunt being pulled by our government to get us into another war. That That's a part of me. Now, maybe he was genuine. Maybe he did want to go to North Korea for reasons that are just not articulated to me. And it's not like they need to be articulated to me. I ain't that important. But... 
a part of me feels that this is orchestrated. And now, especially given all the mystery surrounding it and the lack of detailed information and the lack of curiosity to find out that information as well, it seems to me like yet another flashpoint is being prepared for future conflict. And part of the reason that I say this is not just me having a habitual distrust of my own government at this point. It's the fact that as the war in Ukraine looks like it's about to enter its final stages where we're going to see the fireworks go off and the Ukrainians are going to evaporate before the Russian backbreaker offensive. As that war looks like it's about to enter the final stages, we here in America, I believe, need to be on guard for the bait and switch. We, we have to be ready for the bait and switch. Just like how just like how Ukraine was used to take your attention away from the 20 year long failure in Afghanistan. I believe that this war might potentially either either this or the Taiwan war is going to be used as the bait and switch to take your attention away from Ukraine. Just like how Ukraine was used to take your attention away from the, the trillions of dollars we spent in the Middle East, the, the hundreds of billions we spend in Afghanistan, the hundreds of billions of dollars worth of military equipment we left in Afghanistan from the armored trucks, the planes, the, the rifles, the bullets, the, the tank rounds, the artillery shells, the anti-tank rounds, the, the javelins, the, the, the javelins and the stingers, the, you know, the, those same weapons that we were hailing as the greatest thing since sliced cheese when the war in Ukraine first began. Yeah, all those weapons that we left behind for the Taliban. Yeah. Um, and the helicopters. How can we forget the helicopters? Just like how Ukraine was used as a bait and switch so that we didn't we were we weren't left to think about what was going on all the failures that we had in, in Afghanistan. We weren't left alone long enough to really think about that. Uh because we had the Ukraine war to think about. Just like how Ukraine was used as a distraction from that, and we were inundated with Ukraine this, Ukraine that for a year and a half. I would not be surprised if some future conflict, be it, be it in Korea, be it in the Middle East, with especially with all the tensions flaring up in Palestine between Israel and Palestine, uh, and the fact that the Arab world is increasingly able to put more focus on the conflict in Palestine and are now demanding resolution to it. You have Israel, and then there's, of course, Taiwan waiting in the wings. I think we need to be ready for the bait and switch. We need to be ready for our government to put the bright and shiny thing up in front of our face. It's going to be placed in front of us to distract us from the abject failure in Ukraine, which in some ways is even more is even worse than the failure in Afghanistan. Because in Afghanistan, it was equipment we left behind, right? It was trillions of dollars, sure, but it was over the course of 20 years. The embarrassment was the way in which we left. Not, not that we left, not that we, we lost in some grand spectacular battle. It was the way in which we pulled out and where we left behind thousands of American citizens. And then 13 Marines died. And you had Afghanis falling off the plane as it launched because there was no security to keep them off the tarmac because they decided that they were going to launch 
the evacuation from Kabul International Airport, where all the people go, instead of from Bagram Air Base, the secluded location with a very, very large airstrip that you could have conducted that evacuation from. Just like Ukraine was the distraction from that, uh, this new conflict, whatever it may be, is going to be the distraction from Ukraine, which, again, Ukraine in some ways was worse, is going to be worse of a defeat than Afghanistan. Because Afghanistan was 20 years. Afghanistan was us fighting bandits in a desert. Afghanistan, uh, the, the humiliation was in the way that we left and all the equipment we left behind. With Ukraine, it is going to be the symbol of how we would have fared in a direct war with Russia. The destruction of the Ukrainian army will be essentially a giant metaphor for how NATO as a whole would have done against Russia. How the United States would have done against Russia on land. Because a, a point that was brought up by, I, I believe, I believe it was, uh, who was it? It was, it wasn't Alexander the Duran. I forget if it was um, Scott Ritter or Doug McGregor. They brought up uh, a very interesting f fact, which has been true the entire time, but you know, just it sort of hit me now that the Ukrainians being trained by NATO this entire time means that all the tactics or, or the vast majority of the tactics that they're using on the battlefield to try to fight the Russians are NATO tactics. These are they're fighting with American weapons and using American tactics. They're being led by American slash NATO generals who are in, or, or commanders who are, you know, operating on their own accord. They're not official in any way possible. You know, they're being led by and, and guided by NATO and American commanders. They're being belt fed American weapons and ammunition. And let's not forget that they're getting real-time intelligence assistance from American intelligence agencies. In all, For all intents and purposes, this is an American army, which is being slaughtered by the Russians. So when Ukraine loses, after we've given them everything we have to give, it will serve as a giant metaphor for how the United States would have done against Russia. We would have lost. All of NATO would have lost. So in some ways, the fall of Ukraine will be even more of a humiliation and an embarrassment and a blow to this to our prestige and our grandeur than the fall of Afghanistan was. The fall of Kiev, the surrender of Kiev will be more impactful than the capture of Kabul by the Taliban. And I don't think our government is mature enough to take that L lying down. I don't think that I honestly don't. I think that they'd rather start some new shit somewhere else to take our attention off of their failure. Another failure of theirs. Which leads us to where we are today with this soldier defecting North Korea. Now, perhaps he did it on his own accord and he'll just be used as a tool, his defection will be used as a tool to create conflict, which again, our government is not above doing. But we have to be on guard for the bait and switch. Taiwan is on deck, we already know that. Taiwan is on deck. Israel, Palestine, that's on deck. 
we have, and again, now we have the Koreas on deck. Especially once you add into not just this defection, but all the talk of those missile tests by the North, where they're, they're firing ballistic missiles, and they were trying, they have, they're firing hypersonic missile tests, which again, if the if that report's true, that the North Koreans have hypersonic missiles, my goodness, we fucked up. <laughs> we fucked up, because we still don't have hypersonics. So if it's true that they do, and we don't, that's crazy. And again, all the talk of these missiles combined, and these missile tests as raising tensions in the region, uh, you can see the drums for war steadily being beaten. Not just with Ukraine and Russia, as you hear talk of potential direct involvement with troop, with NATO troops, well, not NATO, American troops, reservists being sent to Europe as part of Operation Atlantic Resolve, the talk of Poland getting involved in Western Ukraine, the talk, the, the tensions being built up between Israel and Palestine now boiling over again but in a way that is catching the attention of the broader Arab world in a way that it's it hasn't done for decades now. And you add to that Taiwan, and you add to that this North Korea, you, we can see the writing on the wall. And it spells the infamous three-letter word that is war. Taiwan's on deck, Israel's on deck, Korea is on deck. So we have to be on guard. Our government is going to put us in another war, or at the very least, they're going to try to, before they take this L. And, but the problem in this particular case, with the United States provoking a war with North Korea, is that we're not going to end up with a war against North Korea. We're going to end up with a war against China. Because if you think China is just going to sit there and watch us invade North Korea, well, I I'm sure they would feel mildly entertained watching us walk into the minefields. But if you think that the, the Chinese are just going to sit there while the American military alongside the South Korean military invade the North and they're not, and that they're going to do nothing about it. You all, I have a wonderful yacht in Libya. As a matter of fact, no, I have a wonderful yacht in Mali that I'd like to sell you. All right. Yes, it's a landlocked country, but you know, you, you, you can get some good beachfront uh, frontage. You know, you can get some good beach frontage. Where? I can't tell you. I don't know. But, you know, I have a yacht. It's a yacht. And you um, just trust me. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I have a cruise liner in Mali that I'd like to sell you. If you'll have it. <laughs> it's China's not just going to stand there. They could. They could do with North Korea to us that we've done with Ukraine to Russia, which is that they could sit there and belt feed North Korea with all the weapons and ammunition that they would ever want or need and let the North Korean army humiliate us. At that point, just humble us. Nobody expected, expects that the North Korean army is going to put up a, a solid fight against the American army. So the second you start getting double-digit thousands uh, casualty reports, it's a wrap. 
that the prestige of the invincibility of the American military disappears. The second the North Koreans start sending us uh, casualty reports in the thousands in the double digits, like that's just not going to fly. Because uh, it's North Korea. They're supposed to be outdated. They're supposed to be uh, old. Uh, their, their military is supposed to be outdated using old equipment and using old tactics. They're supposed to be they're supposed to be unsophisticated. They're supposed to be a walk in the park. The, the only danger to no, of the North Koreans is that they have lots of artillery and nukes. If they can fight us in a land war and score some dubs on us, well, that's uh, unacceptable. The Chinese could choose to do that. They could choose to take the Ukraine strategy and throw our own mess right back at us, except they have actual industry. The Chinese have industry, so they, they could really supply the North Koreans with a whole lot of artillery, shells. They, they could actually give... They could donate an air force to the North Koreans if they really wanted to. Will they? Who knows? They could do that. But honestly, it's more likely. And they could do that right up until the point that we, you know, our troops are knocking at Pyongyang, in which case the Chinese would intervene directly anyway, just like they did in the first Korean War. But either way this goes, whether the Chinese come into the war immediately when the war between us and North Korea begins, or if they, you know, wait and let us grind it out in, in the Korean Peninsula and then commit themselves. Either way it goes, we're not going to win that war. We're not going to only have a war with us in North Korea. It's going to be a war with us in China. And we're not going to win that war. All we will succeed in doing is wiping the South off the map. Because the Chinese will push us off the, con off the islands. Well, yeah, off the continent. Uh... I meant to say the peninsula, but I, was, I said the continent. But, you know, either way it goes, we will be pushed off the continent. And depending on how the war at sea goes, our troops might find themselves in a position where tens of thousands, where they might have to surrender by the tens of thousands. And at that point, it's, it's checkmate. You don't come back from that. There's no coming back from that. We're not in a position where we can wage a total war. We're just not. We don't have the industry. Every asset that we lose, we can't replace. Our army has failed to meet its recruitment goals. Every branch of the army, whichever one you want, take your pick. We're not, we're not in a position to fight a total war. And if we're the ones who start the war, when we sure as hell aren't going to be uh, fighting a total war, because there's going to be no support for it here in the United States. And that will be the backbreaker. That will be the moment that the American empire dies strategic defeat and humiliation either on the Korean Peninsula or over Taiwan. And quite honestly, if you get a war on Korean Peninsula, you might just end up with America escalating it into a war between China and Taiwan anyway. Or, or vice versa. A war between uh, us and China over Taiwan might escalate into a war on the, the Korean Peninsula. Either way, we're not going to win that war. It's we're in dangerous times and it's we have to be alert we have to be alert we know we know how our government operates we know that they like to do these things we know they like to play games with people's lives it's unfortunate that that's the case and at some point we're gonna need to get these motherfuckers up out of office but for the time being we have to be honest about who we're dealing with and we are dealing with criminals
we're dealing with warmongers who are bloodthirsty. And we have to look out for ourselves because they will send us to war to fight these fights that we don't need to be fighting also they can avoid taking an l also they can avoid being having to sit in their the humiliation of their own policy blowing up in their face because even as this goes down even as it becomes apparent that russia is in fact winning in ukraine you have these people who just who still who they're, they're talking about how oh you have Kissinger talking about how we can potentially get the Chinese to mediate a peace in Ukraine. And the reason that some of them are reaching are accepting the idea of reaching out to China is because the last thing that they want to do is to have the Russians dictate the peace. Because they still cannot accept that Russia is a great power, not some third rate, fourth rate, fifth rate uh, minor country who's a, a one trick pony with gas. They just can't accept that they were wrong. And they would rather take us into a, a third world war than to admit they were wrong. That's who our government is, unfortunately. So I honestly, going back to this soldier crossing into the DMZ, I don't, part a, a good part of me doesn't believe he did it on his own accord. Now, maybe he did. But whether he did or didn't, I do not trust the way in which my government will respond to this crisis. I think that it would use, be used as just another justification for war. A war to avoid letting us, you know, really sit and marinate in this fat L that we're about to take in Ukraine. Hopefully it doesn't come to that, but it's better to be safe than sorry. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. We have lots of changes, lots and lots of changes. The grain deal's dead. Poland might just be given territory in Ukraine, and the Russians might just accept that. And in response to taking an L in Ukraine, the American government might start World War III. Who knows? (laughs) But regardless of what happens, we will have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Hi, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.